0: Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. The AFP Report is a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to the newspaper if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. And today I'm joined by Simon Roche, a representative of the Soitlanders, a civil defense organization based in South Africa. All right, Simon Roche, welcome to the program, sir. How are you today?
1: Well, thank you. And yourself, John?
0: Oh, I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for joining me. You are affiliated with an organization called the Sudlanders. Am I cr- pronouncing that correctly?
1: Uh, it's a difficult one, John. It's uh, Saitlanders.
0: So I hate Landers. okay. Well, you know us Americans, we struggle pronouncing anything that's not basic English, so <laughs> I, I apologize in advance. Um, but no, I, I've so been, hard. yeah, no, I've been familiar with your work and your organization for for quite some time, and I understand that you are currently on a tour of the United States. You've spoken at some some organizations, some conferences. Uh, you've done a number of radio interviews and things of this nature, so. Um, I'd like to talk more about your organization. And to kind of get started, can you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your organization, how it got started, and what its purpose is?
1: Yes, um, John, my name is Simon Roche. I'm a 52-year-old white male born and bred in South Africa. I work for, in the sense of being a full-time employee of which is a civil defense organization constituted under international law, under the specific provisions of the protocols additional to the Geneva Conventions for anybody who's interested in that more sort of deep dive stuff. And we are constituted as a civil defense organization for the purposes of preparing a national emergency plan for civil war. So uh, that means that we as an organization, as people, believe that the trajectory of South Africa is very, very ominous. And international law does provide for uh, what they call identifiable ethnic groups to prepare emergency plans uh, in the event that the, the welfare of those ethnic groups may be threatened. In whatever circumstances, uh, civil war is a nice, convenient umbrella term, uh, but it's not the the be-all and the end-all. It's not the sum total of of what those laws cover. And we believe that uh, the further that South Africa advances into multiracial democracy, the more it deteriorates. And things are reaching the point now that we expect that a conflict could break out sooner rather than later. And to uh, answer the last part of your question, the organization was founded uh, over 20 years ago by our leader, uh, Mr. Gustav Müller. And, uh, well, I've already described the purpose to you, so I hope that that helps.
0: Yeah, no, very good. Now, is is Gustav uh, Müller, he was the founder, is he still involved with the organization?
1: Yeah, he remains our head.
0: Okay, very good. And, and so you're basically like a like a spokesman and one of the, the leading officials of the organization as well?
1: Yes, I'm the, the English language spokesman uh, because, well, the organization is uh, dominated by Afrikaans speakers. I'm a native English speaker, so that's part of the reason. And I'm also the head of the foreign affairs department. So I'm the guy who concerns himself with Liaising with overseas organization making organizations uh making periodic trips and uh, giving speeches and so on and so forth to the outside world very cool, that's very interesting. Well,
0: speaking of that, I know you're on a tour here in the United States. Do you want to tell us a bit about your travels here and what you've been up to
1: yeah uh, John we've come out again uh, having uh, been here. I think, on six occasions in 2017, 18 and 19, we spent almost a year in total over those three years in the USA, raising awareness and raising funds, which is very, very important. Um, And then uh, COVID kicked in uh, after I was last year in 2019, in October of 2019. So a few months later, In early 2020, the world was smacked by the pandemic and the travel restrictions were implemented. And so I haven't been able to visit. Uh, I came as soon as the travel restrictions were lifted about uh, two and a half months ago to do the same as we have done in the past, which is to raise awareness and to raise funds to meet people, talk to people, give speeches, talk about what's happening in South Africa. And the, the title of this tour is The Crisis of Christendom. So for the first time ever, our tour is focused not entirely upon South Africa, but um, largely also upon the broad crisis that is being experienced in the West. And by that, we simply mean that if you take altogether all of the events that have been taking place over the past few years that have had the world in a turmoil those events have not affected only the west but the west is always the common denominator the madness of lgbtq sweeping uh, over the world was directed primarily or remains directed primarily at the west you don't hear much talk of it in the hindustan times or Uh, You don't uh, hear much about uh, the the classrooms of Kazakhstan having to change their, uh, whatever, you know, the curriculum to adapt to LGBTQ. And, And you might say something similar about the pandemic. You might say something similar about the clot shots. It's now well demonstrated by Dr. Lee Merritt, the former head of the United States Surgeons and Doctors Association, that the clot shots affect uh, ca- Caucasian people are the worst, and then other races less and less and less, and and the least affected races are the uh, black black races and the Ashkenazi peoples. And so, it, it, over and over and over again, we've seen in the past few years how the the paradigm of life, the paradigm of civilization, the paradigm almost of of a person's mental sanity has has uh, changed or uh, is they are asking for it to change. And uh, always the common denominator or the bullseye in a way seems to be the West, uh, uh, even though other races and other peoples and other civilizations are to some extent affected by those uh, things. But we always the most. And so we want to talk about that to Americans. We want to talk about why it is that the West is is. Um, is facing this enormous onslaught against everything that we hold near and dear to us. Yeah, no
0: doubt. I completely agree with that. And there's – gosh, we could probably talk much more about the COVID pandemic, plandemic I refer to it as. Um, But I want to ask you um, – and this is a topic that I'm going to be writing about for American Free Press in an upcoming article about South Africa. I mean you guys have really sort of been on the front lines of this war on the West because South Africa – if I understand the history correctly, was basically an outpost of Western civilization in Africa, right? At least, at least from its founding, that that has changed quite dramatically with this, um, you know, th- this formation of this multiracial democracy that that currently rules South Africa. But I got to ask you, just sort of broadly, I mean, wh- what's the current situation like in South Africa today? I mean, I remember just in the past year or two seeing news reports and videos come out on social media of massive rioting and looting very similar to scenes that we've seen in America in recent years with these massive BLM and Antifa protests and uprisings and looting and rioting that have taken place uh, taken place in major American cities across the country so what what is like the reality of crime and violence and just the current state of affairs in South Africa
1: you know, John, in many ways, South Africa is, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. If you are the farmer who was not murdered, if you are the woman who was not raped, if you are the person who didn't leave lose their job, I beg your pardon, then in many ways, South Africa remains uh, the country of what we call Um, uh, barbecues, sunny skies, and Chevrolet's. Uh, There was a jingle in the 70s that ran something like that. South Africa is a beautiful place, but uh, to give one example, the the homicide rate in the USA is about five people per 100,000 population per year. Now, uh, the USA is obviously has this reputation worldwide of being gun crazy and of people getting shot left, right and center. South Africa's uh, national homicide rate is thirty nine per one hundred thousand per year. So almost eight times higher than the United States of America. Um, th- there's a lot of violence, a lot of crime. The unemployment rate is skyrocketing. Apparently, we have now the second highest unemployment rate in the world. Um, there was another example that's just uh, skipped oh oh, yes, that's right. Our national electricity generator we, we have a national utility that provides electricity to the entire country um, is failing. In the week prior to my departure for the USA, the national blackouts, where everybody has a turn, you know, shared equally, I have two hours of blackouts and then you have three and a half and then the next region has uh, one and a half. But in a 24-hour period, it gets shared out equitably. The, 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 The blackouts in that week were nine and a half hours a day. Now, just imagine trying to run a business, a hairdressing salon, A uh, engineering shop, a library, uh, a store, a general dealer, a grocer's store, a a, a hotel, anything minus nine and a half hours a day of electricity. And in the week prior to that one, so two weeks before I departed, it was 11 and a half hours a day. The, 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 The railways have all but failed completely. Um, We are having a number of water contamination crises from time to time around the country because uh, the water system uh, uh, has not been maintained. Um, The country is uh, going through a period of, of anxiety following many years of initial... Uh, idealistic optimism following the ANC's victory in the 1994 that is to say the first uh, multiracial democratic election uh, won by the African National Congress under Nelson Mandela for some years it was all uh, sunshine and roses and then reality began to bite a little bit but people felt that they could cope and we should just uh, you know, uh, 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 brave, brave it, brave it out. Um, but we've reached the point now, almost 30 years from 1994, where people are genuinely very anxious. Uh, to give you one sort of random example, in, in February of last year, my oldest son was hijacked uh, for, for the car, and uh, they put a, go- a knife to his throat, I beg your pardon, and they kept him hostage for a while, and then they, they let him go. And uh, he walked towards the nearest police station to report the matter. I've just been hijacked. The car's been stolen. I had a knife to my throat. It was terrible. And on his way to the police station, he was set upon and mugged by a gang. Uh, and that gives you some idea of the realities of, of living in South Africa. You know, the farm murder rate, we spoke earlier about the, the national USA murder rate of 5 per 100,000. And in South Africa, the national rate is 39 per 100,000. Well, the murder of white commercial farmers. So we don't include in this any little small scale farmers who are not doing it commercially. We don't include farmers' wives, friends family members visitors farm workers and so on just of white farmers alone white commercial farmers is something like 170 per 100,000 so uh, those are
0: astronomical numbers that's incredible mm. well yes. and it's and it's no wonder you hear talk about how there's a genocide being perpetrated against especially the farmers of South Africa, right? I mean, I've heard that
1: for a very long time. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it is tantamount to a genocide. I mean, if if in the USA, uh, 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 Native Americans were dying off for one reason or another at that sort of a rate, uh, it would be reported by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal as a genocide among the indigenous, you know, they would classify it as a, a threat to the very existences of those populations. So, yes, yes, John.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. You had talked about your son being basically carjacked and, have, you know, he had a knife held to his throat. He was held hostage for a period of time. And then as immediately after that concluded, as he's walking to report this crime, he gets mugged again and jumped by a group by a gang basically and it's interesting i mean this sort of thing seems to happen all the time in south africa i mean i literally just was looking at south african news before we started this podcast and this is the first story that came up this was reported by the guardian and it's talking about one of the main government ministers was robbed and had in in the and her bodyguards guns were stolen in south africa Yes. Um, the, did, did you did you hear about this? Has happened just recently.
1: Yeah, I, I heard about it. I didn't read the entire article because there's just so much of that madness in South Africa. But um, the minister of transport. Yes. W- yep. Yes, was th- that happened to the minister of transport on a major freeway? Uh, Yeah, this is –
0: real real quick, let me just mention. This is what the article says. It says the South African government minister has been robbed and her bodyguards have had their guns stolen, say police, and what authorities in the country described as an unprecedented incident. I mean I guess it doesn't sound too unprecedented based on what you've said. Maybe the fact that it's happening to such a high-level government official is unprecedented, but – this seems to be a, a relatively common sort of occurrence in South Africa, um, and apparently the tires of the government minister's car, it, it, and it was the transport minister whose name I will not even attempt to pronounce. Um, this the, the the car of the transportation minister um, had their tires punctured, and basically, you know, resulting in the car being having to pull over, and then you know, the, these these uh, criminals proceeded to, to rob everybody in the vehicle, taking the guns of the bodyguards. Um, apparently, the minister and the guards were relatively unharmed. Um, but this is a very frightening incident, especially for such a high-profile person to, to have this happen to them.
1: Can you imagine how terrifying it was? I mean, imagine driving... Uh, along a road in South Africa and you you ride over a few leaves and the next thing, your your tires are punctured. Um, I think they're called Keltrops. Keltrops is a little shop, uh, three-pointed uh, uh, spiky things that they that they use to puncture tires. Hide them under some leaves. You drive over the leaves. The Keltrops puncture your tires. You've got to pull over. You don't know what's going on and. And the next thing uh, that you know is uh, there are 12 uh, men armed with AK-47s pointed at your head. It's, it's terrifying. It can be absolutely petrifying to live in South Africa.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, and I'd, I'd say, I mean, I guess we sort of – it's interesting, like, learning more about oh. South Africa. And, for example, like, we, we did a Q&A via email. And kind of just reading your responses and, and learning more about the history of South Africa, because there seems to be a lot of parallels with what's going on in the United States. Um, although it, perhaps South Africa might be further along in this sort of degeneration process from a prosperous third, you know, first world nation into sort of a you know a developing like third world type country, right? But we see a would, lot of we see a lot of parallels in America, and I mean, you, you know, you've you've traveled here quite a bit. You've you've been a lot of places in America. Do you see any sort of parallels with what's happened over the course of you know you living in South Africa and what you see in America currently?
1: Yeah, very much so. I think that uh, it's difficult for most Americans to see these things for for various reasons, and none of them are are negative reasons. It's just the way that it is, and we needn't go into, into all of that. But the long and the short of it is that we would say that when we witness how LGBTQ has been rammed down the throat of America, almost out of the blue in the past few decades, and when we see how um, a reckless debt of $33 trillion has been incurred and how you now have uh, the, the tax collections of, of the USA will be 4.44, 4.44 trillion dollars this year. The budget is 6.13. So there's a 1.7 trillion dollar shortfall. That's 38%. 38% is, I mean, it's absolutely mental. We would say that is somehow. A parallel to what is happening in, the South, in South Africa. Once you've kind of watched this movie, you begin to recognize common denominators that might be alien to people who haven't watched the movie. In 2009, I gave the, the uh, uh, speech, the main speech at, a, at an event in the South, in Memphis, Tennessee. And I fell quite ill and I was unable to read my speech. You know, I couldn't focus on the, on the page. And so I said, look, I'm just going to stand here and waffle, if you don't mind. It's about the best I can do. I'm really quite ill. And uh, I stood at the lectern on top of the podium and uh, just spoke about many various different things. One of the things that I've mentioned was how we would suggest that open violence is likely to begin in the USA fairly soon. And I was later reprimanded by one of the people at that event for saying such a nonsensical thing. And lo and behold, five months later, the Portland riots broke out. And about a half a dozen people who'd been in the room that day contacted me saying, I got your number from so-and-so. I hope you don't mind me contacting you, but I just want to say how incredible it is that you were correct. How did you know? It's unbelievable. Uh, And we would respond by saying, we're not gurus. We're not prophets. We've watched this movie before, and sometimes the things that are identical don't appear to be identical. So we would say that your country is much further down the road to to perdition, if you like, than many Americans seem to think. Because it doesn't have the same uh, symptoms as we experience in South Africa, many people are inclined to dismiss it. But the chances of The USA having a currency crisis that, you know, rains hell down on the country are higher than the chances of us having a currency crisis. But the chances of me being assaulted and robbed and stabbed are higher than the chances of you being assaulted and robbed and stabbed. But we would say that there's a lot more commonality in those two seemingly disparate things than most people readily recognize.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, th- I think you're right about that for sure. And, and I got to tell you, I mean, I follow, you know, a lot of independent, you know, independent media sources, a lot of um, websites and, and people on social media that follow very closely the reality of crime in America. And I mean, every single day, there are just outrageous crimes being committed, largely by non whites against whites and mm-hmm. it's just simply not even reported on at least not on a national level you could find stories in local media but it'll never be it, it is more or less never presented in like racial terms right that angle is mm. always that angle is always downplayed especially mm. if the perpetrator is a non-white minority and the victim is a, is white now if the, ra- the if the races are reversed of course, it makes national headlines and it instigates all these far-left activists, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Antifa movement, those sorts of people, and there's riots that break out all across the country. So mm-hmm. we have a very, very much politicized and very weaponized mass media and, and just criminal justice system in general, I think you could argue, that, yes. may, be, that may be more advanced – than even what's in South Africa. I don't know. I've never been to South Africa, but it's pretty atrocious when you really get into the, the nitty-gritty details and look at the reality of crime in this country and how for, very few people even recognize the reality of it.
1: Well, there are other things too. We would, we would point out that although our election system is probably not squeaky clean, we probably haven't had a stolen election, as you guys did in 2020. And I say to people, it's it's almost as if Americans don't recognize how serious that is. And, and please don't take me the wrong way. I'm not suggesting that no American has any idea of the meaning of a stolen election. I, I'm just saying that people are inclined to say, well, we're okay. It's not too bad here golly gee, it's rather bad over there, don't you think? And we would say, well, yes, it is rather bad over here. But do you realize the meaning, the implication, the import of the fact that in the world's most uh, advanced and powerful uh, uh, country, the election was stolen? Do you not get that. So uh, from our point of view, when we witness the extent of the hijacking of your courts and the, the, the arbitrary nature of many legal decisions, such as you're alluding to now, I mean, it's very arbitrary. When I do it, it's bad. And when you do it, it's not bad. That's, that's, that's by definition arbitrary. Um, we, we perceive that the circumstances um, of the United States are perhaps worse than most people recognize, but they don't uh, they don't perceive them to be quite so bad as let's say South Africa or Zimbabwe or uh, the Congo or what have you, because well I'm still earning good money, and uh, my wife wasn't raped yesterday, therefore it can't be quite that bad. And we would say, yes, it's, it's good that your wife wasn't raped. We, we agree fully. But perhaps you don't recognize uh, how much trouble you're in when, as I heard on Friday, uh, in a national news report, a judge gave a decision in favor of the wife in a marital relationship against the husband. When they were in dispute, as they have been in dispute over the sex change of the five-year-old son, we would say, "Yeah, you good for you. You're earning dollars, and you 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 know you, you weren't stabbed to death last week, and that's fine. But do you really understand how much trouble you're in when the court system is allowing mothers to?" Sex change their children against the wishes of the other spouse, the father. So that's. Isn't it? The- isn't it
0: just like almost like unbelievable that we're at this state of affairs in America? Well, and and also I got to ask you. You sound particularly sort of like confused or, or or just bamboozled that this would even be happening. I'm assuming that South Africa is not nearly as far along on this whole LGBTQ plus. Transgender fad that we see all over America all over Western Europe. What's what's it like down there? I mean are kids being indoctrinated with this sort of propaganda Are parents allowing their children to literally generally mutilate their bodies and pretend they're an opposite sex or something.
1: Well, I'll tell you something now John that uh, might not be equally popular among your listeners as other parts of the interview. But in theory, we're further down the road because in theory, and and this is a very big talking point for the African National Congress government. In theory, we have the world's most liberal constitution. So on all of these matters, we're meant to be ahead of you. But nobody (laughs) nobody can take them seriously. And it astonishes us that people take these things seriously in the USA. And and I've told people this is the the part that some people might might offend some people. I've told people that I've arrived at the conclusion that it's because of your television commercials. If I watch the Liberty Insurance commercial, for instance, I, I, I see something that is more puerile and asinine than anything I've ever seen in my whole life, bar none. And all it seems as if. All of your centers of power, uh, or the, 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 the brands, the marketing, the government, the courts talk to you like you're mentally retarded. And people, I think, I don't know, I'm surmising, I'm trying my best to figure out how it is that Americans, of all people, and that's important, Americans of all people, fall for this utter rubbish so easily they take it seriously. Well, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Right. And you think, well, how did it, your brain get to the point that you that you take this seriously? And as I say, I've arrived at the personal conclusion that it's because of the advertising. They they talk to you like you're imbeciles. And yeah, yeah.
0: well, no, I think you're making a good point. And I I, I will tell you, I mean, just from my the sort of you know, just personal observation, that there's a lot of people that do not agree with this nonsense that do not go along with this nonsense that want their kid they they do not want their kids being subjected to this sort of brainwashing and indoctrination but that being said there's so few that are willing to take a public stand and make a fuss about it there's more and more people that are but by and large most people do not want to make a fuss about it they don't want to You know, risk maybe getting in trouble with their job, or you know, alienating somebody, or whatever. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of people that are not necessarily on board with this, but just lack the courage and the the willpower to actually vocally take a stand and say, "Look, this is unacceptable." Um, But it is pretty incredible, and I think you're right. I think not only advertising, but just like mass media in general and the entertainment complex centered in Hollywood in general, has played a key role in sort of normalizing this sort of behavior, normalizing, for example, homosexuality by presenting it as something good and and sweet and innocent in sitcoms, for example, and and in movies. And now we're seeing the same thing play out with the whole transgender agenda. And it's absolutely sickening. It's absolutely evil and, um, frankly, disgusting. And that's why, I mean, I don't even, I don't even really ever watch anything on television, honestly. Um, but, you know, <laughs> most Americans, like most Westerners, are simply glued to their television, it seems like. Oh, sorry, I can hear something in the background. Is that?
1: It, it was just somebody making an announcement.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, so anyways, no, that that's interesting. Um, and, yeah, so to kind of get back to some of the other questions I had here. Um I'm curious because South Africa as you sort of mentioned became this this like multiracial democracy. You said what like 93,
1: 94? 94.
0: 94. Yeah. Okay. So how did that in and, and, and were, were you were living in the country at that point?
1: Yes, I'm yeah. I'm born and raised okay, in right. South Africa.
0: right. Right, okay. So how, how could you talk about like how it how it sort of changed the government changed society? I mean, obviously it didn't happen all at once. It's probably sort of an ongoing process but like how has it changed um like south africa's white minority like the status of the white minority are they currently being discriminated against or like looked down upon or like you know like because in america there's a lot of racial tension a lot of it is exacerbated and instigated by the media by these radical far-left activists at our universities for example. Um, is that something you see in South Africa as well?
1: Yes. Well, <clears throat> the, the the process of adjusting us, uh, uh, getting us accustomed to the notion of uh, you know a complete change from from apartheid to a, uh, f- a free racial democracy, uh, a multiracial democracy, I beg your pardon, was something that began in the 1980s. It was very stealthy um but very mild. And it was only really when the ANC assumed power that they made drastic changes that nobody kind of expected. Our society was very conservative. Abortion was just absolutely out of the question. Uh, divorce was very difficult to obtain. Gambling was illegal, and so on and so forth. And the African National Congress came in and said, well, in... Uh, in a liberal uh, democracy, all of these things must be permitted. That is a sort of sine qua non, uh, you know, I don't even think think about opposing them. And so those radical changes were made uh, and people struggled to get accustomed to them, but they were tolerant. Uh, people felt, well, this is the new way and we're very much in the minority. So we, we have to accept these things. Um, but over time, of course uh, it's proven to be nonsense, you know uh none of the um great changes...
0: oh, Simon, I think you may have muted yourself. Let me see oh sorry, sorry simon you you totally cut off there for just a moment
1: uh <clears throat> I was just saying that none of the great changes that were brought in under multiracial democracy have proved to be beneficial. You know, I don't think that anybody can say, well, golly gee, thank goodness for the African National Congress uh, because uh, banking is better. Thank goodness for the new South Africa because roads and clinics and hospitals are better. You might say in, in speaking in abstract terms, and idealistic terms that it's wonderful that everybody can vote and that everybody's equal and that everybody <clears throat> is um, uh, may have equal dignity. Uh, but in concrete terms, I, I don't think anybody would say that anything has improved in the new South Africa rainbow nation, as they call it.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I, I can appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering how, how have racial relations changed, or are they still and, – and I guess how, how are racial relations, generally speaking, in South Africa?
1: They vary, very, very widely, John. <clears throat> you know, uh, following 1994, I think that there was an enormous effort made by many white people to to – Not necessarily toe the line, not necessarily buy in, but many white people bought in and more power to them. But uh, what I mean to say is that even the most recalcitrant white people, even those people who were most opposed to the multiracial democracy, even those white people who were most uh, stuck on the apartheid system, I, I believe made some kind of an effort to play the game to a greater or lesser extent. And that continues to be the case. I think on a person-to-person basis, in an office, in a shop, in a barber shop, in, uh, uh, on, a, on a bus, uh, the racial relations are okay. They're nothing special, but they're, they're good enough. Um, I think, however, that uh, white people are reaching the point where they've had enough of playing a game that makes them look like fools. Um, The the African National Congress is not a force for good. The new South Africa is not a force for good. And white people, I think, to some extent, uh, are... More and more reaching the point of saying i 'm either going to leave this country as we are experiencing a huge what we call brain drain from South Africa. The best and the brightest, the most the capable people are leaving in droves, or i 'm going to endeavor to have less to do with it, and that applies to me i 'm living in the middle of South Africa, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, largely because it means that I don't have to deal with the insanity of life on the streets of Johannesburg, of life in the African national municipalities of the country. Um, yes, uh, I'm not sure how I was going to end that sentence, but I think I've made explained myself well.
0: No, that's very interesting. Um, and, and I mean one thing that I've noticed definitely like especially in America and maybe maybe Western Europe to a certain extent, I, I would imagine South Africa to, to some extent. The especially the media, but even the educational establishment that like the overall narrative um, portrays blacks and other minorities in America, for example, as the victims of white supremacy or they call it like systemic racism. Um, that, that we've somehow like held back and disadvantaged blacks and other minority other minorities due to systemic structures of racism and oppression. What I mean? What is your response to this very far left, very unobjective narrative? In your view? Well,
1: that's a that's a tendentious argument. You know, it's an argument that only works in the absence of cold hard logic. Um, Anybody who's familiar with geography knows full well that the horn of Africa is about a, a, a stone's throw from, from um, uh, 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 dear me, I would go and forget the country's name now, but uh, Yemen and Saudi Arabia and the other country's name I'm forgetting. In other words, the proximity of Africa to the Middle East and the proximity of Africa to the Near East, that is to say the Levant, uh, Palestine and Syria and Lebanon and the proximity of Africa to southern Europe across the the Mediterranean, not to mention the extensive records of Chinese uh, fleet visits to to Africa. In other words, the largest uh, fleet of ships that has ever set sail in the history of the world to this day was a fleet that was sent from China to Africa. Africa had thousands of years of contact with and engagement with what you might call the civilized world. For one reason or another, Africa never progressed. Whites came to Africa in meaningful numbers. Uh, I I must emphasize that, meaningful numbers from about the mid-1700s. Uh, The contact in the 1400s, 1500s, and 1600s was really negligible. The number of whites uh, making contact with uh, Africa was scarce, to put it mildly. Uh, Those few white people had no way of having a, a manifest impact upon Africa. So if you say that whites had strong contact with Africa, Uh, in large numbers from the mid-1700s until the mid-1900s when African countries uh, began to gain their independence. Then you you have a 200-year period. Now, it seems to me to be irrational to suggest that for the sake of a number, for 4,000 years, in the absence of all contact, there was no progress, and in the past 70 years of independence, the progress has been poor. But it's all due to the 200 years that sit between the two. It's it's daft. It's irrational. It's stupid. It's it's foolish. Um. Yeah. That's that's my response yeah. to you. Yeah. Well, that's
0: a yeah. That's a that's a good analysis of the situation in South Africa. Certainly, I think in America though it's a little bit different because. Blacks were brought here, and they've just never been able to attain the same levels of achievement, the same educational you know, capabilities, cognitive abilities, these sorts of things. And I think it's fundamentally a result of genetics. It has nothing to do with white people oppressing blacks or anything like that. It's just – that's just the way the world is. I mean that's the reality of, of, of race, the reality of genetic differences and these sorts of things,
1: and that's something that's
0: totally left out of the conversation.
1: Yes, well, in sociological terms, as you know, John, from the mid-60s, uh, following the work of um, of Margaret Mead under the tutelage of Franz Boas, um, the world adopted the notions of uh, uh, nurture over nature, um, and it swept through the entire world, except among horse breeders and dog breeders horse breeders and dog breeders said all of you sociologists in all of the world can believe whatever you want but we know we don't think we don't believe we know that different breeds and different subspecies possess different characteristics some are stronger some are faster some have better stamina some are more intelligent some learn better, some learn uh, later, and so on and so forth and and in general terms, exceptions aside we're talking about the the um, normal distribution now normal distribution in general terms on average, that always holds true so while the the, the, the world of humanities was seduced by this <laughs> This crazy idea, as I say, in the world of dog breeders and horse breeders and other animal uh, husbandry fields, not one person was seduced uh, by uh, uh, those propositions, not even for one minute.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that says a lot. When these people are, you know, this is their livelihood. They know what they're doing. They they know the reality of just genetics in general, whether it's applied to animals or to humans. Um, yeah, I,
1: th- I, think I, that's, have,
0: I think that's very telling. Yeah.
1: I have Belgian Malinois for personal dogs, and I have Jack Russells for hunting dogs. Let me tell you that, without any exception ever, Belgian Malinois are the most intelligent dogs you can possibly get. They're the Those are those They're- are
0: awesome dogs. I love those dogs.
1: Yeah. And uh, and and Jack Russells are always hyperactive. And very difficult to teach, but they have a great killer instinct. Always, all there is never a time that you come across a Labrador that has more energy than a Jack Russell, and there's never a time that you come across a, a Belgian Malinois that is more stupid than 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 a, a Labrador. Uh, these things are reliable and dependable always, and that's not to knock black people all of the time. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible subject. It's, it's not nice to always be mocking another race uh, for, for the way in which God endowed them. But in scholarly terms, in academic terms, in clinical terms, this is reliable and dependable always. But there yeah, are different yeah. traits
0: yeah no and i I completely agree and i I certainly don't ever mean to mock or demean any group of people. It's just we have to be able to talk about this stuff rationally and scholarly, and we're prevented mm. from doing so by you know this this totally weaponized totally unscientific, totally unscholarly perspective of you know you mentioned Margaret Reed and the other cultural Marxists that basically took over academia. And have largely dominated the conversation, and have demonized anybody that's talking about the reality of genetics, the reality of race, as somehow, you know, white supremacist or racist or evil or something like that. And it's not anything like that. It's just we have to be able to have grown-up conversations about these subjects if we really want yes. to understand the way the world works and, you know, socio-cultural political realities. That's it. That's it's it's not yes. meant to be demeaning towards anybody. It's just we have to be able to have a grown-up conversation about the way the world works. Um, There's a couple last questions I want to talk about um, before we wrap up here. One is that um, South Africa is a part of the BRICS coalition. Yes. And I'm curious how you view South Africa's participation in this very much emerging geopolitical alliance that is sort of challenging or at least has the potential to challenge the traditionally unipolar America-dominated world order that has kind of prevailed, more or less, since World War II?
1: Well, I I think it's important to begin by saying, telling your podcast listeners that people should not be misled or uh, they they shouldn't misunderstand South Africa's importance in BRICS. South Africa is the red-headed stepchild, the black sheep, the ugly duckling. South Africa's economic, social and political performances or performance uh, don't compare remotely to the upward trajectories of India, China, Russia and Brazil to a lesser extent in, in these years. South Africa is struggling very, very badly and South Africa was only admitted to BRICS. After a lot of pleading the year after it was uh, BRICS was properly established, so having gotten out of that out of the way uh, so that I don't mislead anybody into believing that South Africa is doing something tremendous on the world stage. It's not South Africa, it's the other four, except that there are now uh six new members, so I call it the other ten. <laughs> BriCS is going to have a hugely detrimental effect upon the unipolar world order. It's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to absolutely destroy uh, the, the superpower in the form of the USA or the dollar completely. But the work that is being done by, by the, the BRICS nations at present To move away from the dollar and to create a second bull in the world is so effective um, that it promises to be hugely detrimental uh, to to the unipolar world order in years to come.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's a very interesting development and a very welcome development, frankly. Um, And I say that as an American. I mean, I'm looking at the the trajectory, the track record of America's, you know, sort of unipolar moment in the world. And it's been nothing but a disaster, not only for the entire world, but even the American people themselves. I mean, we have a regime that is just hell-bent on advancing the interests of other countries, especially Israel's, at the uh, expense of the American people. And that kind of leads me into the final topic I wanted to talk about, and that is, of course, all these conflicts raging around the world, whether it's in Ukraine, um, you know, the, the Russians versus the Ukrainians, or in the Middle East with Israel and Palestine and, and you know the other more Muslim, country, you know, Islamic countries in the region. I'm curious, what do you make of these conflicts, and what is driving them, and does it have any does it have any sort of significance to the future of the West, to the future of South Africa? It all seems to be sort of being driven by the same corporates if if you will
1: well i think that the the case for the lusitania pretext for the usa's entry into world war 1 is a very very strong case i think that the case uh, for the gulf of tonkin incident, incident as the pretext for the usa's entry into the Vietnam War is a very, very strong case. And so we go on through weapons of mass destruction and Tora Bora and all of these other uh, bulldust stories that we've had rammed down our throats for the past, however long. And with that in mind, if we examine the Ukraine conflict, Russia's position is a very, very strong one. And I'm not a Russophile. I'm merely endeavouring to look at this thing objectively. And let me begin by saying this. The reason why the Ukrainians are fanatically national socialist is because of the Holodomor in 1932 and 1933, when the when the epicenter of the 1917 revolution, in other words, uh, 15, 16 years later, when the Moscow Leningrad epicenter uh, was faced with a crisis. Of, of food. And when Ukraine as a far-flung province, Ukraine means, for those who don't know, borderlands, um, was having good harvest but not sharing it. So Stalin sent in the troops and confiscated the harvest and about 10 million, between 7 and 10 million Ukrainians uh, died of starvation in the Holodomor. With the result that when the Nazis entered in 1941, Ukrainians greeted them with the traditional offering. Offering, not gift. Offering. Their their word is a religious word, a holy word. Ukrainians greeted the Nazis with an offering of bread and salt. As far as the Ukrainians were concerned, anything that was not communist, that was not Russian, That was not associated with the Holodomor was their friend. And so this national socialism was adopted. Now, we have had this uh, circumstance since 1991 where two successive U.S. presidents, a number of uh, secretaries of state, both in writing and verbally, swore blind to the Russians that NATO would not be expanded one inch eastward, not One inch eastward. And of course, as we all know, there have been five waves of expansion since then. And since 2007, and I urge your listeners, if they've never listened to this, never watched it, please, I urge you, uh, watch. You will find it easily on YouTube's Vladimir Putin speech at the Munich Security Conference of 2007. Vladimir Putin has been pleading on hands and knees with the tears streaming down his cheeks. Please don't do it. Please don't push us to World War Three. Please do not threaten us in this way. Every time you expand NATO, you put uh, ag- aggressive weapons in those countries and they frighten us, not by our standards, by your standards. Because when we put... Um, RS-12 missiles on, uh, on, on uh, Cuba, you almost had a nervous breakdown. You didn't like it at all. We're asking you nicely, please don't do the same to us. Don't create a Cuban missile crisis in Poland and uh, uh, Czechoslovakia and, uh, and so on. And NATO absolutely ignored them uh, or ignored him. And there's much more to the story. I won't labor the point, but the long and the short of it is that both parties have some kind of a point of view. You know, the Ukrainians say, oh, Russians, we hate them. They're communists. They starved our grandmothers to death. You know, we want to be national socialists. We want the insignia of the Nazis. We love it. It's our cup of tea. Okay, fine. I would feel the same way. I, would, I hate national uh, 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 Nazism. personally, me, individually because I believe it it misled under a Hindu uh, Hindu sign. This is just a personal thing. Nobody who's listening has to agree. Uh, Misled Europe's greatest nation to its greatest demise. Uh, And I think that that was an absolute tragedy. So I'm not not pro-Nazism. I'm just saying that if I was a Ukrainian and all of my family members, three generations back, had been starved to death by the Russians, well, I would be anti-Russian, anti-communist, and whatever that may be. That's what I would be. Whether it's Buddhist, whether it's a, a, a Nazi, it doesn't matter. I would be that thing. And, and, and so the Ukrainians have that identity. On the other hand, the Russians are very anti this thing that, that Victoria Newland and Anthony Blinken have set up. Very deliberately, very consciously. We know that in 2013, 14, during the the Maidan uh, uh, protests, um, that that got rid of Viktor Yanukovych, who was who did win the election fairly and squarely, that's not in dispute. Uh, that Victoria Newland was standing on Maidan Square, uh, handing out sandwiches using. Uh, I love it. <laughs> uh, somebody, uh, I, I'm on an I'm on an interview. I'm on an interview Um it was using CIA, or rather was using State Department money, I beg your pardon, to hand out to buy sandwiches and, and share them on the Maidan Square. Uh, so the, the long-winded answer to your simple question is that the USA is uh, once again, it's, it's unquestionable, it's indisputable, has been the main lever in antagonizing russia into this war russia begged and pleaded for it not to happen that was ignored and of course not reported in in american mainstream media and um it looks as if the usa is hell-bent upon doing the same thing again in israel yeah
0: well i think the the key thing is is it's pretty clear that the U.S. foreign policy, the, the, the people controlling the U.S. State Department, for example, and, and just the broader foreign policy making apparatus, are the ones facilitating and instigating these conflicts, right? That, that to me is, is very, very clear at this point.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> you know, shortly after Muammar Gaddafi announced that he wanted to trade oil in euros. So there had to be a conflict in Libya. Shortly after Saddam Hussein uh, said that he wanted to, to uh, trade oil in, in, uh, in independent currencies, so there had to be a, a war in Iraq. It's just one of those things that seems to crop up over and over and over again. Oil has been discovered uh, off the coastline of Gaza. Lo and behold, we've got to have a war with Hamas. And Now, obviously, people would say, well, 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 uh, uh, but it's Hamas who started it. It wasn't the Americans for once. It wasn't us. I would say we know from many, many, many recorded claims that Israel, Israeli politicians, Israeli intelligence, former intelligence officers and Israeli former military officers have time and time again taken credit the establishment of Hamas. It is our own controlled opposition. We establish Hamas as a counterweight to Yasser Arafat's Palestinian Liberation Organization. We know also that the Israelis have among the best intelligence services in the world. We know that to arrange the invasion that Hamas conducted on the 7th of October as a project management exercise is something that you simply cannot do in days or weeks. It must have been known about for many months, if not years. We know that the Israeli uh, 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 monitoring uh, radar uh, uh, monitoring devices are able to pick up desert squirrels and seagulls. We know that, and there's a very good reason for it. It's because of remote-controlled devices, little. Uh, Little remote controlled cars that can carry bombs and and after all, what is the size of a drone? So we know at every single level that Israel had to have known that the invasion was going to take place. And yet we're expected to believe that nobody picked it up for seven solid hours. So I'm inclined to say to you that I'm going to withhold judgment on this one. I'm not going to jump to to judge Hamas and say, well, Hamas definitely instigated it. For once, uh, the USA is innocent. Sadly, my instincts are they lean the other way.
0: Yeah, well, I don't blame you for that at all. <laughs> I myself have been very skeptical of the official, the official story, the official narrative coming out of, coming out about this alleged surprise attack by Hamas. I have a lot of questions about it, and I certainly have a lot of questions about the future of, of you know, the, the region and the potential for the U.S. getting involved militarily, which is exactly what the Israelis have been begging for for a very long time. So um, I hope that cooler heads will prevail, but you never know with these psychopaths running the U.S. government these days. Um, but Simon, I'll tell you what, man. Um, I'm going to have to wrap up the, the podcast now. Um, Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. I'd love to do this again. I hope you have safe travels the rest of your trip in the U.S., and I wish you the best of luck, sir.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having Saitlanders on your podcast, John. Um, I've long – for a very long time, for six years, I have hoped to be interviewed by AFP. Um, We appreciate it very much, and I'm sorry for the interruption. I was walking – very stealthily, down the aisle, between two enormous shelves of uh, shelves of books here in the quiet public library, and uh, a gentleman overheard me talking, and he liked so much what I said that he he jumped from around the the, the, the row of shelving to tell me, "I like what you 're saying, I like what you 're saying so I oh wow
0: <laughs> no no it 's okay, I was going to say I, I kind of heard that in the background yes. i didn 't know exactly what was going on. <laughs> But no, that's awesome. See, the the message is resonating with people.
1: <laughs> so,
0: well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. No, we'll definitely stay in touch. We'll do this again in the future, and um, yeah, no, I'll I'll definitely be in touch about the article for the for the newspaper and you know future projects that we can work on.
1: Thank you very much, John. It's very much appreciated by Saintlanders.
0: Okay, thank you, sir. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Same
1: to you. Okay. Alright, then. Cheerio. Bye bye. Bye bye.